0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Has the Michael Chong affair revealed the federal government's national security incompetence? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? We'll discuss that. Canada looking to become part of a trilateral military and intelligence sharing deal between Australia, the UK, and the United States. What do we need to do to make them happy? And several sports bodies that are now under fire for serious problems, including allegations of abuse, sexual assault, and financial malfeasance, received high scores From a federal department investigation what's going on there discuss that as well as we continue the bill kelly podcast and it starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml in ottawa and right across the country concern continues now about the uh, concern about foreign investment that we've talked about on the program extensively public safety minister marco mendicino now says that the liberals might order canada's spy agency to reach out to all levels of government about possible foreign interference Canada, of course, expelled uh, Toronto-based Chinese diplomat after it came to light, according to a CSIS report anyway, that in 2021 there's a plot to intimidate Conservative MP Michael Chong. We can all know about that and how Parliament's going to be dealing with that. And so Mendocino now says that this might have to expand to other levels of government as well. Here's the minister.
1: We will ensure that we are briefed directly on parliamentarians uh, and
0: we'll make additional um, uh, refinements as, as may be needed. Problem is, I think an awful lot of people thought that was already happening, at least at the federal level anyway. To assess what has been going on and the latest in the, uh, the Michael Chong affair, Please pleased to welcome to the program uh, Eugene Lang. Uh, professor Lang is a, an assistant professor in the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Uh, professor, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you on the show again. Thank
1: you for having me, Bill. Good to be here. You
0: know what what I'm hearing from an awful lot of our listeners here the last little while is is what seems to be a huge disconnect or communication problem uh, between federal governments and and intelligence agencies. And and once again, we got this from the prime minister yesterday with uh, two of his former aides who simply said, no, we we never saw this report. Yet the CSIS people seem to, to maintain that, look, in 2021, we said it. I don't know who watched it or saw it or who filed it away, but it was sent it's It's awfully hard for us to feel secure about what these people are supposed to be doing when we hear this this sort of well, contrary information, really,
1: yeah. well, I think uh, the Chong affair is indicative of some kind of a serious breakdown of protocols and procedures, and it also speaks to the general culture, I think, in the federal government when it comes to dealing with national security. When a member of parliament is implicated in this way, if the intelligence is reliable, and we now know it is reliable because they've expelled a diplomat as a result of it coming to light through a leak. When an intelligence like this comes to light, uh, it would normally, normally, uh, at least in my time in government, would have brought, been brought to the minister responsible, in this case, the minister of public safety's attention immediately. And it would have been dealt with by that minister immediately. In terms of informing Mr. Chong and informing the Prime Minister directly, not through bureaucratic channels or briefing notes or anything like that, that didn't happen in this case. And to my mind, that's a complete breakdown in the internal governance on this issue.
0: And they realized that I think one of the major areas of concern, uh, you know, if local police here, you know, uncovered some information that there were people that are targeting me and my family. Mm-hmm. I'd expect them to call me and say, "Look, we got a problem here. Let's discuss what we're going to do." But Mr. Chong was never informed about it, and uh, that, that, as you mentioned, is a huge breakdown right now. But what about the responsibility of the minister here? I mean, is is there a connection here? Are there briefings between, if if not the prime minister's office, at least the ministerial office who's in charge of that particular aspect? And, legendwards, in this case, it would be Public Safety Minister uh, at the time to at least you know make us aware of what's going on, or at least make Mr. Chong aware.
1: Well, ultimately, in our system, as you know, the minister is accountable, whether he's aware or not. So that's the first thing. If he's not aware of something of this significance, again, it says something about the relationship between him and the security agency in question here and its leadership. And this is CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. There was a time, I know when I was in government, I once worked for the solicitor general, who's the forerunner to, before they created the public safety minister minister responsible for CSIS, where the minister would meet with the director of CSIS every week when the House of Commons was sitting, at least every week when the House of Commons was sitting and would get briefed on particularly sensitive issues by the director of CSIS like this. That's where this, sh- this file should have been raised and aired with the minister. The question I have is, do th- does that type of briefing, face-to-face verbal briefing, between the Minister of Public Safety and the Director ceases happen in Ottawa anymore, and I've been asking around about that and can't seem to get a straight answer. In this case, that doesn't seem to have happened. It went into some kind of nine-page memo, this intelligence, along with a lot of other things that were in that memo, and it somehow ended up over in the Prime Minister's department, known as the Privy Council Office, and from there, evidently, it went no further.
0: Which indicates, or at least leads to speculation, that somebody in the Privy Council's office deemed this to be not that important. Is is that a fair assumption?
1: Well, it could be. A couple of contextual factors. Uh, My understanding, and we haven't seen this memo, is it was a nine-page memo and Michael Chong was not referenced by name. It referenced um, MPs that were sponsors of this motion, in the House of Commons uh, condemning the Chinese government over treatment of the Uyghur minority. Uh, But one could easily have inferred that Mr. Chong was the MP in question because I think there were only two sponsors to that motion, and he was one of them. Uh, It was in the summertime, uh, and I I hate to tell you this, but uh, Ottawa does really go to sleep in the summertime, both at the political level and in the bureaucracy. Anyone who says otherwise is simply not reflecting reality. Um, and then the third factor here was the the person who's supposed to deal with this or in the prime minister's orbit is a position known as the national security and intelligence advisor to the prime minister, it's a deputy minister level position in that office, in the Privy Council office. And when this happened, there really was no national security and intelligence advisor to the PM in place. Uh, he had retired in June and his replacement, his full-time replacement, was not announced until January 2022. So someone was in an acting capacity. So those factors, those contextual factors, might explain why it wasn't identified in the Privy Council office as significant enough to have elevated it to the level of the prime minister in his office, which they say it, it was not elevated to that level.
0: I, again, we're getting into the uh, realm of speculation here, but is is it because there are so many of these? I mean, we know that this is what the Chinese government do. It's is the raison d'etre. Anybody speaks against them, there are always repercussions. Uh, I still remember Mr. Chong speaking to that motion in Parliament. We had him on the show at the time, uh, right. and you know, we talked and commented what you know how brave it is to do this because you know they're going to come back at you, not at the government, but at the individuals that do this. Uh, you know, and and I understand. I've I've got relatives that worked in. in in government uh, for quite some time up in Ottawa. And I, you're absolutely right about July and August and September up there. Uh, but this is CSIS. This is different. Uh, you know, the, the, it's like a police force saying, we're taking weekends off, guys, okay? Uh, you know, c- catch up with a on Monday morning if somebody's breaking into your house. You expect these guys to be diligent 24-7, 365, but apparently, you know, it, that's not the case here.
1: Well, we don't know for sure. They certainly identified this as as, as an issue. They had intelligence on this. Uh, The internal systems of government didn't seem to work, though, in getting it to the right people at the right time. And that could, in part, and probably is in part, CSIS's fault. But it's also, I think, the fault of, as you mentioned, uh, probably the Minister of Public Safety had some responsibility in this. At the time, it was Bill Blair, not Mendocino. And this system of transferring information through the Privy Council Office bureaucracy to the Prime Minister seems to have broken down. It, you know, it's almost like a perfect storm in my view. There seems to be a lot of blame to go around. I wouldn't lay it entirely at the door of CSIS. Um, I would think it speaks to a general lack of sophistication and priority that this government attaches to national security issues overall. I think that's how you end up in this place, with these sorts of errors seemingly happening inside the system. And Michael Chong's not just some run-of-the-mill Canadian here, I I think we do have to acknowledge that. He's the foreign affairs critic for the official opposition. He's a former cabinet minister himself and therefore a a member of the Privy Council. Um, You know, if, if intelligence is on him, it's reliable, has been identified by CSIS that should be going right to the top of the government right away. And it doesn't need to be in a memo, and it probably shouldn't be in a memo.
0: Given your experience, though, in, in Ottawa over the years, and I, I found there's a certain incongruity here, Professor, that this is a, a prime minister that, since he's taken office, a, a seemingly wants to improve Canada's and, and possibly even his profile internationally. Uh, you know, he talks that way at CSIS, he talks that way at the G7, the G20 meetings, Uh, About even, you know, the application again for another seat on a UN Council. Uh, Yet they seem to pay little to no attention to what's going on in foreign affairs.
1: Yeah, I think they've been, uh, there's sort of three big areas of policy. I think this government's particularly weak in foreign affairs is one of them, national security and defense is another, and fiscal policy is a third. These are areas that they don't really seem to have much of a feel for, much of an interest in. It doesn't seem to be a priority areas for them. And, and as a result, you get often mistakes, uh, ham-fisted behavior. Uh, you get bad appointments of individuals that are responsible in these areas. We've seen all of that uh, over the last seven and a half years. Um, so, this is not, this isn't anything new. I mean, the Chong, particular, the Chong incident is obviously new. Uh, but, you know, the Trudeau government's record on foreign affairs and national security and national defense is well documented by many people. It's not been a strong record. I mean, we lost the vote at the UN Security Council, as you mentioned. In fact, Canada lost that vote uh, more decisively than they did a few years before when we mounted a campaign during the Harper government.
0: Uh, and it just seems to permeate different aspects of it. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the program uh, about the feedback now about the, the AUKUS, the defense pact that was signed that yeah. excluded Canada. Yeah, well, that's uh, one. And now, yeah. now the Prime Minister's office, of course, is backtracking. So oh, we were never even asked to be in that. And, and some of the sources uh, in the United States and UK are saying, yeah, they were, uh, but they didn't want to play ball. They didn't want to ante up. Uh, so I mean, again, anything that wants to put us in a negative light, uh, the, the tack now seems to be, oh, we didn't even know about that.
1: Well, in, which is, in, in, in my in, mind, inída- I think that's actually true from what I know. Really? Oh, well, They weren't asked. But that, to me, says it all. These are our closest allies, the Australia- Australians, the Americans, and the British. Uh, and along with the New Zealanders, we've been involved in the Five Eyes Intelligence sharing arrangement mm-hmm. with them for over 70 years. These are our closest allies. And to not be aware of the most significant defense and security agreement, three of those allies uh had been working on for some time says all you need to know about the way canada is seen by our closest allies these days under this government
0: it's a
2: a, it's
1: appalling i mean it's it's outrageous but it's it's it speaks to the reality we are not relevant we're not seen as relevant Uh,
0: that's it's a shocking reality that I think we have to face up to. We, uh, the government has to, but certainly I think we're becoming more and more aware of it. Given what's happened, though, and you know we understand there's CSIS, there's an RCMP, and there were intelligence sources and, and, and law enforcement services, and there's always a concern, especially, I guess, from the government side, when there's a leak of, quote-unquote, confidential yeah. information. But given what, as you've just described, what the, the landscape is in Ottawa these days, uh, and given the frustration that, that I'm sure CSIS feels to say, look, we're doing our job, uh, you know, it stops up there in Parliament Hill, someplace. Uh, can you understand somebody at CISA simply saying, "Okay, enough is enough. We're going to start leaking this stuff"?
1: No, I I can't accept that. I mean that what what that individual or individuals have done is, is illegal. So that's the first thing everyone needs to understand: leaking intelligence is illegal, um, and and it's risky. It puts potential sources and methods at risk we don't know where that intelligence came from. And uh, it's simply not acceptable under any circumstances, I think, for someone inside CSIS to be leaking that. But again, it speaks to some problems internally, because there's been a number of leaks coming out of CSIS, I guess, over the last year or so. It does speak to some internal issues within CSIS, for sure. It also so sends a very bad message to our, again, to our allies that our, our security agency is leaking, is not secure. Our allies share intelligence with CSIS. And if they think there's a risk that the intelligence that they're sharing uh, coming from their sources is going to end up getting leaked to the Globe and Mail in Canada, they're going to be very reticent to share intelligence with CSIS. So it's it's a big deal. These leaks are a big deal. It shouldn't ha- have happened this way. It didn't need to be leaked for this to be dealt with. If it had been handled properly from the beginning, the Minister of Public Safety would have been advised of this immediately in June or July of 2021. He would have met immediately with Mr. Chong. He would have told him this he would have also advised the prime minister directly, not through officials, not through memos. He would have walked across town and sat down with the prime minister and advised him. That's the way it would have it would have happened in a normal, well-functioning system. It did instead not of happen. A
0: paper, instead of as a, paper
1: a result, drill. somebody took it upon themselves to break the law, leak it, and cause all kinds of further
0: problems as a result. Is this going to get worse before it gets better?
1: I think so. I mean, unless someone's going to have to figure out what's going on at CSIS and try and clean that up and tighten that down, and the government's going to have to get better procedures in place for dealing with this. The fact that the prime minister had come out last week and say, I have now instructed CSIS to ensure that, that any intelligence on members of parliament that constitute threats to their safety, I, I guess, are brought to my attention. The fact he had to say that seven and a half years after being prime minister, again, speaks volumes. The culture is not in the system. He should never have to say that. Officials know this, should know this. Politicians should know this. This is table stakes in national security in any government. And, And evidently, it's not in this government seven and a half years in. And Canadians should be very worried about that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, On that note, rather ominous note, I guess we're going to have to break it off. We're just uh, really tight on time this morning. Professor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today.
1: Great being here. Thanks for having me.
0: Take care. Uh, It's Professor Eugene Lang uh, from Queen's University with his take on what's going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are highly interested
1: in continuing to work with our allies, including Australia United States and the UK in terms of our capabilities in advanced technologies, in innovation, in AI and quantum technologies.
0: That's uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand uh, responding to a question from media and uh, which was, by the way, in response to a report that we're going to talk about in just a couple of seconds. Uh, welcome back. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. We touched on this briefly with Professor Lang just before the break. And then, of course, is Canada's role in this AUKUS defense pact. AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, acronym for, of course, Australia, the UK and the United States who are involved in this. Canada was excluded and uh, this report that comes out and talks about this uh, has some, well, should we say, less than complimentary things to say about Canada and its position when it comes to things like this. I want to get some feedback from our next guest on this. Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow with the Canadian Defence and Security Network, joins us to talk about this. Uh, Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time this morning.
3: Not at all. Delighted to be here. It's great to hear you back on air and, and uh, having recovered.
0: Well, it's good to be back, actually. I've got a little time off, and we're doing just fine here. Uh, I want to f- reference one little piece from this report that uh, that I think captures an awful lot of the, the feeling that people had. And and this particular part was written, actually, by uh, one Vincent Rigby, who is a former national security and intelligence advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. And he writes, in part, uh, the glacial pace at which Canada appears to be adapting to the realities of modern great power competition has left it far behind the curve, with consequences for both Ottawa's reputation among its allies and its ability to protect Canadian sovereignty and contribute to the global peace and stability. That's the uh, the words of somebody who used to work up here. That rather damning assessment of what's going on, isn't it, Thomas? Absolutely, it's a brutal phrase.
3: Uh, it, he really has um, he, he really has gone full throttle uh, there, and it's it's it, in a way difficult to argue with with what he's. What he's saying, and we, we we're very much aware of of the challenges in adapting um, to the new security environment. And Canada has has not done so quickly. Canada has really struggled to, I think, in in my opinion, to to reconcile. Its self-identity uh, with the world uh, as it appears to be developing, and the security environment that it's developing into, and and that is a a, a real problem for Canada. Um, I I feel like the the report um, from from Vincent Rigby was perhaps uh, overly harsh in some ways, in the sense that I think that the key for Canada here is not necessarily. About looking at AUKUS. I think there were very good reasons why Canada did not go into that first stage of AUKUS, uh, which primarily um, revolved around nuclear submarines. And the really important point is going to be what happens next, whether Canada can get into the next phase of AUKUS uh, and how that intelligence sharing component of AUKUS intersects with the five eyes partnership which is incredibly strong and is uh, functioning extremely well from from uh, from everything that i understand so how is that five eyes going to adapt uh, to this new kind of parallel organisation with of course three of the members of of the five eyes uh, and For Canada, ensuring that it it remains part of that is going to be key. Uh, And the second part I would suggest also is coming back to that ability to protect Canadian territory sovereignty and and contributing to global peace and stability. We need to think carefully about what it means to protect Canadian territory and sovereignty. And a big part of that, uh, I I think, in in my opinion, is committing um, the the real spending required to modernise NORAD and to uh ensure that, that Canada's Arctic defence is in a, in a strong position uh, as the
0: conversations and promises have been made to the United States. That's an important point. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to try to connect those two dots. And I think they're very connectable. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the former Australian Prime Minister, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, said that he thought Canada was exclu- excluded from this because of their aversion uh, to acquiring nuclear subs. Uh, and mm. the prime minister seemed to make that quite clear. However, I've also been told by some of my sources in Ottawa that when uh, president Biden was up there a while ago uh, and they had their talks behind closed doors and Arctic sovereignty was part of that discussion. Uh, the mm. idea about Canada, you better step up here. I mean, and, and and you know, just don't be against nuclear subs because they're nuclear. I mean, this is, it's the weapon. I mean, if, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, enemy is, has a bigger stick. You better get a bigger stick, or you're not going to be in the ball game very long. Uh, the United States, and I think Aukus seems to understand that now, but Canada doesn't seem to agree with that.
3: For sure, and I, I think it's you know, as, as you referred to there, the, the important point to hear, uh, the important point to note here is the nuclear submarine is about the propulsion system. It's a it's a nuclear engine, uh, yeah. uh, really, rather than it being a a, a nuclear weapon um, as we usually think about them. I think for for me, one of the the Key components of, of being part of an alliance is ensuring that your capabilities are complementary. And whilst Canada having an effective submarine fleet is obviously something which would be uh, extremely beneficial um, and it would be helpful. We've seen the Canadian Armed Forces advocating for... Uh, new submarines, replacement submarines for some time now. And I I think that's, it's it's really significant that that does occur. But by the same token, for me, it's it's really critical that Canada can think about, uh, think really carefully about what it can bring to the table and what gaps it can fill in other places. So not necessarily simply adding more submarines um, to this situation, which sure would be beneficial in some ways, but saying, okay, where is Canada's expertise? What can we do with artificial intelligence? What can we do um, with those technological capabilities that we have and leverage those in service of our own security and that of our allies? And I think that um, domain awareness component, understanding what's happening in the Arctic is absolutely crucial. And unless we have that that um, awareness, then just buying more uh, military equipment doesn't get us to the conclusion, the security and sovereignty point that we really need. So I think it's it's critical that, that Canada looks at what it can provide and uses that as the real leverage here to to talk to the United States in particular, um, exactly as you said, there was real pressure on Canada to, to enhance its Arctic security, but going back to the US and say, okay, this is how we are going to uh, Advance Arctic security, and we're doing this because we're really flipping good at this. We can provide this capability, and perhaps you don't, you aren't able to provide that capability at the moment because you've got focus um, being being pushed somewhere else. So, Canada, I think I, I am staying optimistic and saying that Canada has a real opportunity here as well, but it needs to think very carefully about what gaps it, it is going to plug, and then funding those gaps um, significantly and quickly.
0: But isn't part of that whole process being uh, communicative about this and and having that dialogue so they're aware of it? I mean, another former diplomat, uh, when Colin Robertson, uh, I find it interesting by the way that all these former diplomats are now speaking out on this, and uh, speaks to me about some frustration, you know, with what they wanted yeah. to see done. But anyway, he he made the point that uh, that he says uh, the the preference about not wanting to get involved with nuclear submarines, he says, was probably predicated on the fact that we feel that we have a preferred relationship with the United States. In other words, they're going to have our back no matter what, and, and yeah. I think. I think our partners are starting to get a little tired of that answer. That maybe, maybe, okay, maybe you don't need to build subs. But what do you bring into the party here? I mean, you know, the fact that the U.S. has got our back because of NORAD uh, doesn't mean that we have to or can be delinquent in, in our responsibilities here. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, I completely
3: agree with you. And I, I, I think it is also extremely interesting. Um, the focus of of these comments that have come out by by former diplomats, and I think it uh, loops back to that. And first quote that you read around the the glacial pace at which Canada appears to be adapting to the realities of modern great power competition. This is, this is the point. And I I think that there is. Uh, legitimate criticism that can be leveled at at the current um, Canadian government and and to an extent previous governments uh, as well to say actually you you do need to exactly as you said you do need to be communicating what you are doing and actually move forward to we've heard a lot of conversation about NORAD modernization we've heard a lot of conversation around uh, improving Canada's ability to operate in the Arctic but but let's start to see some genuine progress on that, let's start to see um, the the work actually being done. Let's start to see Canada uh, meeting its promises. It, it's it's very difficult, I think, for a Canadian government not to kick the can down the road. In in some ways, when you just start to look at the numbers that are involved um, in in uh, achieving these sorts of defense goals, they they are eye watering. There's no getting a, a, away from that, and it's it's difficult for a government, I think, to commit to spending on defense. Uh, particularly in Canada, when there are so many other things that uh, that money can be spent on. And so so it is a challenge, but I, I completely agree with you. I think the point is is now we're starting to see those hints of of criticism uh, emerge in public a little bit more. And that is perhaps a, a sort of early warning sign, if you like, that, that Canada does need to start to shape up uh, in terms of meeting its commitments.
0: Uh, and, and I get that. I mean, you know, there's a political reality, and you and I have talked about that in the past, haven't we, Thomas, that, mm-hmm. that you know, if they do this and if they make this commitment to AUKUS, there may well be pressure uh, to increase that military spending that is going to be politically problematic. But I, I think what they're saying here is cross that bridge when you get to it, okay? Let's just stay in the game here and do what we need to do for the president. We'll see just how they respond. Minister Anand seems to be on that page too, and we'll find yeah. out what the next steps are going to be. Thomas, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, as always, for this. Not at all. Delighted to speak to you. That was really good fun. It was. Thomas Hughes, a postdoctoral fellow for the Canadian Defence and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Globe and Mail has obtained a report uh, about uh, some evaluations of of Canada's uh, sports organizations. Now, we've talked extensively about this over the last couple of months, uh, for all the wrong reasons, by the way, because of allegations of sexual abuse uh, of, of, of bullying of so many different things have gone on and and some would suggest uh, some rather questionable use of, of of funds in some of these organizations and they've all been called to the table at various times uh but this internal analysis done by these organizations the national sports organizations which we'll refer to now as nso's uh basically says that uh the federal department here sport canada Uh, has actually given some pretty decent marks to a lot of these organizations uh, that have done some rather questionable things in the last little while, uh, allegations of abuse, sexual assault, and financial malfeasance. So is there a disconnect here? I mean, what's going on? Did they try to gloss over this? Were they not aware of what was going on? Were they not paying attention? Our next guest might have some insight into this. I know she will, as a matter of fact. Uh, She is Dr. Anne Pegararo, who is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in all of sport. Uh, Doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today.
2: Always good to be here.
0: (laughs) When we see a report like this, and uh, and many of these uh, organizations that have come under, I think, you know, scrutiny deep scrutiny over the last little while uh are getting pretty decent marks from sport Canada or hockey Canada I mean you know who's these are Canada soccer uh the artistic swimming and, and bobsled team skeleton team uh and and when they say yeah they're doing a pretty decent job and we know and we kind of probably have very strong evidence to the contrary uh, how do you how do you read this what's your assessment there
2: so I think uh, probably mainly two things. So first of all, it's uh, the report cards were the NSOs providing the information themselves. So Sport Canada didn't really play an active role, so NSOs rated themselves. But secondly, yeah. I think the important thing is it's like they're rating their own policies, not their actual practices, right? So we know that, um, for instance, like, obviously, through the Hockey Canada situation, that there's policies, but they were breaking those policies in practice. And so what we're seeing is like, on paper, we look really good, but when we're actually running our organizations, we're still creating problems and making, you know, egregious decisions.
0: Uh, and other organizations in a similar fashion. Uh, but but isn't that like saying, yeah, hey, we have some great bylaws here? We don't enforce them, but we have some great bylaws?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think we just probably saw that again with Canada Soccer's elections this this weekend, they would have rated high. They have you know, extensive bylaws, but you know we, they just finally changed the bylaw that said to be the president of the organization, you had to have served on their board. So it was very insular. Now they finally changed that. But it's the reason that we ended up with a re-election of Charmaine Crooks as the board president, because there was very few eligible people to serve in those roles. So how—
0: Does the government have a role in this? Uh, I mean, we've seen the headlines, and there's some very brave people that have come forward and and told their stories uh, to shine the light on this. Uh, But now we're getting into the bureaucracy of it. And I think this is where a lot of this gets muddled simply because we don't know which department is responsible to whom. uh, You know, are these rules, are these bylaws, or or what about about the evaluation of the actual people that hold those positions? I mean, you know, there's so much information that we want to see here and i'm not so sure we're getting it in the fashion that we need to
2: no and and, you know as we talked before i think standards like these report cards and even better are really important but what sport canada doesn't do is it doesn't audit these organizations they just accept them self-reporting this to me is one of the major problems in canadian sport is we self uh report and we self-evaluate we don't have outside entities doing this and so that creates a real insular system so i think going forward Canada says okay we've got a system we need to improve it but we need an external audit focus on these organizations
0: well and and that's a a fabulous first step and something that needs to be done I mean that's that's the old cliche though isn't it but it you know it's applicable I think here you follow the money uh doesn't know what's going on I mean all of these people you know are looking for money from the government to try to carry on with their activities uh but who does the evaluation of how the money is spent
2: well, exactly. And this is, this is you know, let's be clear, it's taxpayer money, it's yours and my money that that we're, you know, happy they're supporting sport with. But we want to know that the money's being put um, into the right areas, but also used judiciously and not used, as in Hockey Canada's cases to, to you know, uh, perpetuate or, or hide um, uh, issues inside their sport. So I think the Canada soccer one's a great one, too. You know, when we look at the money and follow the money, we realize they really haven't been funding the women's team. And so those are the types of audits that we need to see coming out
0: well and and I guess you know we can focus on that one because of the the concern with the finances and involved in that and and you know when you've got players on the team as you and I've discussed in the past doctor you know both men's and women's team from in our elite soccer teams that are going on strike uh that indicates that there's a problem here with with the cash flow and where that money's being allocated doesn't
2: it it absolutely does, and I mean you know that's a that's the a pretty bold and, and brave step for these athletes to strike for better work conditions, because essentially this is their work environment. And I think when we take a look at what happened inside Canada Soccer, we saw that they were right to, to, to make those strikes, and, and they allowed the light to start to get shine on some of the issues that are inside that organization.
0: How transparent are they, and how transparent should they be when it comes to allocation of funds?
2: Well, if you're asking my opinion, I think they should be 100% You know, transparent. And I actually really think we need to do what the government, the federal government talks a lot about, which is like this gender-based analysis. We need to have a lens on it to know that if you are purporting to to have equal teams and continue with the Canada soccer example, we need to show that you're making the decisions to fund them equally, to provide them with the same opportunities, the same staff at their training camps, the same time in their training camps. So those types of audits need to be done from both the equity side, but also from the financial side. And I think we need 100% transparency.
0: And and I understand, uh, the, you know, this is not just a Canadian problem. I mean, this this is a, a global problem here when it comes to gender equity in sports. And we, we've talked about that at, at length. Like that was it in the bonus Aires Olympics a few years ago. They showed the men's training room, and it was state of the art, beautiful stuff. And, and the women's training room, it looked like a, a, a broom closet with a couple of barbells in it. Uh, that and that that exists, but that's not an excuse that we should be able to and not do what is right here in this country, is it?
2: No, absolutely not. I think we, we know that we're putting funding into these organizations. We know they have the capacity to make these decisions, um, but they've, they've made themselves in, in, in insular in such a way that they just keep perpetuating the same types of decisions. I think we could be a leading nation. Uh, you know, this crisis should provide that opportunity for us to become a leading nation in transparency and in equity in all of our sports.
0: Talk to me about the role of Sport Canada in this. So, you know, We've talked, you know, the umbrella, you know, uh, Canada Soccer, Sport, you know, Hockey Canada, and all these sorts of organizations and, and some of the concerns that have been... Uh, but, you know, we're told, if you look at an org chart here, that Sport Canada is at the top there. They're supposed to be, uh, you know, monitoring these organizations. Are they efficiently?
2: I would think we're finding out that they're not. I don't believe inside their structure they have an audit function. You know, they do fund... They do some program evaluation of of some of the money they put out, but they don't really have an audit function. And I do believe that the sport minister has finally come to realize that some of her recent comments are starting to say, you know, we need to put into our system better checks and balances and a real probably reporting system versus what we've seen here, this self-reporting that's never really checked on.
0: Well, and I think that's part of the concern. And I, I, I hate to keep going back to soccer, but, I mean, there are some examples there that, that I think probably underscore what you're talking about here, uh, one of them being the allocation of funds. You know, when uh, when the teams progressed, both men's and women's teams progressed and, uh, to, to World Cup status, especially from the men's standpoint, uh, there was an expectation that there was money coming uh, to them uh, because of the level of, of success that they had attained. And and I'm just paraphrasing it, I don't want to get into all the details, but essentially they were told, uh, yeah, but that money's already spoken for, sorry, uh, you're not going to get much of it. Uh, and who knew about that deal?
2: Right, and, and I think that we see is that, you know, we're putting more money into sport, right? Sport Canada has increased, it needs to probably put more money into to let these organizations run, but they also raise their own money. Canada Soccer does. Um, maybe not as well as Hockey Canada in terms of sponsors. So these are not small corporations anymore, nonprofits. And what we see is is the need for increasing professionalism at the board level, people with actual skills to make the right decisions, not just people who have sport knowledge. And if we start changing both the people at the administrative level and on the board level and bring in people with outside of sport knowledge, I think we're going to start to see better decisions so we don't end up where Canada Soccer did, which is like, oh, yeah, we already took the women's money and gave it to the men.
0: What about uh, a code of conduct? I'm just throwing this onto the table, Doctor, but I mean... uh... You know, the, these are people with a very responsible position and, and you know, we're, we're starting to, to see some improvement in some of these, uh, the, the athletes, from the athletes standpoint, anyway, from a performance uh, standpoint. But the people that are selected or elected to these boards, I mean, for instance, if a, a member of parliament or a member of city hall, whatever it is, there's a code of conduct that they need to follow. You know, you're not supposed to accept gifts. You're not supposed to, to do a number of different things. You, you don't take, uh, you know, money from the purse that was supposed to go to player development and say, we're going to all buy new jackets for ourselves this year. Uh, but those are the sorts of things that were reported as a result. And, uh, and although we can wag our finger at it and say, well, that's, you really shouldn't have done that, uh, I don't know that there's an existing rule or a code of conduct that they need to adhere to.
2: Right. I think we do need codes of conduct for board members. I think we need education and continual training for for people who sit on those boards and make these large decisions. Um, I think that uh, we need a better selection for, for people who sit on the boards. All of that rolls into to what you're talking about. But we should, as individuals who do sit on boards, understand that, yes, a TV should not be delivered to my house for sitting on a board. I'm doing this as a volunteer, um, and I should be doing it as an independent from the organization to help make the best um, decisions possible. So, yeah, education, code of conduct, and increased professionalism is definitely needed.
0: I, I mean, they seem to enforce that at, at uh, you know the at, at player level. I mean, the athletes themselves are fully aware that there are responsibilities and there are do's and don'ts. Uh, you'd think you know the the minimum that should be there is that the board members should have to adhere to that same standard.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have a system where we surveil athletes in so many different ways, right? Codes of conduct, drug testing. Uh, they wear devices that track all their movements and 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 their outputs. So we're surveilling athletes in an incredibly increasing amount. And yet we're not doing that with the administrators, the coaches, or the uh, people on the boards who make decisions in any way. I'm not saying we need to put trackers on them, but we certainly need some sort of surveillance, code of conduct, and check-ins that aren't just uh, self-reports.
0: Well, ex- yeah, ex- exactly, and I'm, I'm not suggesting these are all bad apples because they're not. There's some very dedicated people here uh, that have done their best, and I think have shown some results in in, in enhancing the sporting experience and elevating our, our status on, on a global basis, and and they're to be commended. Uh, but you know, when you have numbers of stories of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct, uh, and and then you find out that that same individual who the allegations were levied against is uh, not there anymore, but in another capacity in another area of, of sport. You know, figure where's the tracking here where's the code of conduct where's the responsibility uh for things like that i mean I, I know the minister uh has suggested that that she wants to look at this and revamp the system uh some are suggesting that the whole thing needs to be blown up and started all over again uh, I, I don't know the governments want to do something like that but do you, well, what we know and what we see in this report though does that suggest that there has to be a major restructuring taking place here in the in that org chart that we talked about
2: I do I think we need you know we saw the the building of the the osic the the separate entity for trying to, for reporting abuse and harassment right why are we not having some sort of external organization that actually audits for performance for finances for uh, compliance, for actual practice on um, you know good ethical decision making, um, and gender, you know, with a gender based analysis lens on it. So I think that would be the addition that needs to come into Sport Canada, or as an external entity that you know everybody puts their reports into, and just like you and I would get audited potentially for taxes as a, as a randomness. That's the kind of thing we need to put into this system, so that people don't know when it's coming, organizations, and then they get fully audited. I guess
0: the sense of the, doctor, the parliamentary committee that's been investigating this is, is, I think, it done a very credible job of, of turning over all the rocks and finding out what's going on. And Kevin Waugh, who's a conservative MP on the committee, uh, I, I think encapsulated that. He says, poor Canada's done a pretty good job of establishing standards for funding, but a horrible, brutal job at reviewing them for compliance. And there's the problem. Uh, so he's identified that. Uh, I guess the question we have now is, so what are you going to do about
2: it? Right. I do think the parliamentary hearings continually peel back layers um, to show the issues and are getting at some of the roots of where these issues are coming from in terms of the governance models um, and the decision making we've seen. But yeah, you're right. What's the next step for the government? When it, When is the minister, you know, she announced money yesterday to support athletes um, or today, I think, to support athletes to get on boards so that we have the athletes voice at the board level. But what else is she doing in terms of of really financial audits, performance audits, um, and just really ethical decision-making audits, I think, that need to happen in these organizations. We can cross our fingers and hope that's the next announcement coming, but I'm not sure we're getting there yet.
0: Well, especially because, like you say, oftentimes government's solution to to problems like this is just to throw money at it. And I think what we found uh, and what this committee has found, the parliamentary committee has found, is it's not necessarily uh, uh, that more money is going to solve this. They're always grateful for that. But there are structural problems here that need to be addressed.
2: Well, and I would also say I know the sport, you know, having worked with a lot of them, they do need more money to operate. We all know everything's increasing costs. But I would say before we put more money into the system, we need to do uh, a proper audit and make some changes before we put more money at it. So you're right, just throwing money at it could actually make the situation worse than actually making it better.
0: Well, uh, here's hoping that the, the scrutiny that, uh, that seems to be placed on this right now is going to have some positive results. Doctor, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today.
2: Uh, thanks for the conversation.
0: Take care, Dr. Ann Pegararo from the uh, National Research Network for Gender Equality in Sports. She being the co-director of that organization. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML.